Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Also glad to welcome back to the podcast from our partners at Calvert Research and Management, Anthony Eames. Anthony is a Managing Director of Responsible Investment Strategy for Calvert. So Amantia, Anthony, thank you both for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. It's great to be back with you both. I know we have a lot to cover, though. As a starting point, do want to provide our listeners with a little context around what we'll be covering today. I know our conversations typically revolve around the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. This month, the publication did provide an overview of three top-of-mind topics that investors should be paying attention to as we continue to move through 2022, covering the debate on energy security, ESG regulation, as well as LGBTQ plus inclusion in the workplace. Amantia, I wanted you to touch on perhaps how the current energy supply constraints are impacting your outlook on the energy transition as the world faces geopolitical turmoil. Could you cover which types of renewable energy solutions you see gaining traction at the moment? Of course. Thanks, Dan. And and great to join um, again uh, to, to speak about sustainable investment perspectives. So to your point, um, that's right. And the war in Ukraine has put this, a spotlight onto the energy debate um, everywhere in the world and in Europe in particular, um, especially as we look at the, the, the fact that Russia's gas supply to Europe um, is and has been at risk. Um, this is a conversation we've had for many months now, but um, it, it continues to stay urgent as the need to diversify the energy supply chains um, is important, as is the need to boost the renewable energy adoption. Um, as we look at the situation currently, what we're seeing is that in the near term, the pressures that many countries, again, across the world and in Europe in particular, are facing on, one, energy affordability, and two, energy security, means that they are likely, in the short term at least, to focus on more polluting um, energy sources. Um, Germany is a case in point and is in the spotlight recently, as Germany, as, as you know, imported over half of its natural gas supplies from Russia um, in its efforts to phase down from that engagement, um, but also facing the, the energy supply crunch um, the, the, the German government announced in June that it would pass emergency legislation to turn back on its coal plants for at least up to two years. Um, so this is, um, again, kind of the way that some of these governments are managing and navigating these pressures. Now, that said, that's the near-term view. Um, as we think of the, the middle, the medium to, to the longer term, the other thing that we're noting is that a greater focus on identifying energy sources that are reliable, that are cheap, that are fossil fuel free, um, should create a longer term investment opportunity, both for the traditional energy companies that are moving in that direction, as well as for the renewable energy innovators um, of the next generation, essentially. So as we think of this threat of being cut off from Russian gas supplies as, as a headwind, for European markets in particular, um, over the longer term, this focus on energy security, reliability, and decarbonization should support the investments in clean energy. And as we think of, again, the, some of the areas 
where we see investment opportunities. We look at our, our themes around energy efficiency or the themes around clean air and decarbonization that have um, specific sectors that, that are identified. Um, some examples are clean energy or electrification, batteries, bioenergy, which may present opportunities over the midterm and in the longer term, even areas like hydrogen or carbon capture and storage um, are, are interesting uh, kind of places of, of exploration as we're balancing all of these needs around energy. Thank you, Amantia. Yeah, a lot there to consider. Maybe running with this a bit further, Anthony, to bring you into the conversation. I do want to take advantage of your perspective as a sustainability-focused asset manager. Given all of the geopolitical turmoil we're seeing today, Anthony, how do you approach investing in the energy transition, and how is the energy volatility impacting other sectors? Yeah, thank you, Dan, and uh, and great to join you again, Amantia. It's a real pleasure um, on behalf of Calvert to join this uh, sustainable podcast with, with UBS. So thanks again. Uh, and, and totally agree with Amantia's points. Um, you know, the geopolitical turmoil has clearly created an energy crisis, and uh, natural gas prices have doubled uh, year-to-date in the U.S. and Europe, and really similar stories are playing out in uh, in just about every major economy around the world. Um and, and I think that it's challenging from an ESG perspective. We think that the crisis really creates sort of a complex environmental, social, and governance ESG landscape where long-term environmental risks, particularly thinking about sort of stranded assets, and um, are kind of precariously balanced against a very real short-term social risks. Uh, it's estimated that one in five European households is in sort of an energy poverty where the prices are so high that it's difficult for people um, to, to appropriately, um, uh, you know, cool their homes. So it, we think it's going to be challenging here. This has obviously been a headwind for, for many sustainable strategies this year. But uh, we do think that this crisis is going to ultimately accelerate the energy transition. And we do see several areas of opportunity um, first of all, and, and emphasizing one of the things that Amantia said, we do think that clean energy and renewables stocks are sort of the baby that, is, that has been proverbially, uh, proverbially uh, thrown out with the growth stock bathwater. Growth stocks have been sort of punished in the market this year, and that's the, that's the case with some of these clean energy stocks as well. But the reality is these companies typically operate very stable long-term businesses, uh, they have excellent growth visibility, and many of them trade at reasonable valuations. And we're also likely to have a much more supportive um, political climate for these companies as well. So we do think that there are some really interesting opportunities there. Um, I, I agree with Montia that green hydrogen is one of those areas where we are likely to see some really interesting opportunities. Um, I think this sort of uh, this is a, a bit of a contentious issue in sustainable investing, but uh, you know, nuclear is. Uh, a uh, energy production method that does not generate greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think that's something that is likely to be revisited by many investors. And then lastly, we think that energy efficiency is kind of an underrated theme and, uh, and, and doing a better job of more efficiently using the energy and, and um, you know, insulating our, our homes and businesses can start to alleviate the energy crisis today by reducing Demand. So things like high efficiency appliances and smart lighting and 
LED, those sorts of things, I think are, are really interesting ideas right now as well. Thank you, Anthony. So, Amatia, moving along with our conversation, our focus topics for this month, we're curious about the consequences of the Supreme Court's EPA ruling. As we know, this ruling will constrain the ability of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. So, Amatia, walk us through your perspective on how this might impact the long-term trajectory of the energy transition and how we can still make progress despite this ruling. Sure, Dan, and this is, um, as we're talking about headwinds here, um, this is one that, that is highlighted as, as, you know, as a question. Um, how can training will this uh, recent ruling uh, of a couple weeks ago now of the Supreme Court uh, to constrain, as you say, the ability of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions um, and, and seeing that as, as going beyond the jurisdiction of the EPA and the executive branch? Um, what was interesting in kind of to see uh, about the ruling was that the, the court conceded that capping uh, CO2 emissions may be a, a quote, sensible solution, um, but, it, but it also concluded that this was not necessarily within the purview of the EPA as part of the executive branch, and, and uh, because the Congress did not grant it um, explicit authority to pursue such a policy. Now, this was um, kind of the decision that was that was in the headlines. Um, however, what, what we find is that um, there's more complexity beyond the, the top line there. Um, there are other avenues for the U.S. to help propel the energy transition and even for the EPA to continue um, some of the, uh, the regulation on, on GHG emissions um, that is currently within its purview. For example, um, in... in it has scope to look at uh, guidance on, on restricting methane, uh, which is another greenhouse gas uh, leakage, for example, from, from natural gas um, um, activities. Um, another thing that uh, the ruling does not prevent the EPA to do is, is that of regulating um, individual power plants or, or, or any new power plants uh, that are being established. So there's still some scope there. Um, but. But definitely, as we take a step back, I mean, it's interesting to note um, what we've observed this year coming and the last couple of years really coming in terms of regulation here in the U.S. Um, there's been a lot of signaling, but not necessarily as much movement uh, as was initially expected coming from the legislative branch either. So between the political environment, the Supreme Court ruling, and, and a lot of the global conversation, as well as these energy pressures that we just discussed. Um, we, we broadly, you know, expect to maybe start seeing a shift back in focus on, on um, some of these policies and regulations back to the state level. And this is similar to what we observed during the Trump administration, where that's where a lot of the kind of governmental activity um, and policies on climate was coming from. Now, while this is um, potentially a headwind and a minor setback, the longer term pieces of the energy transition um, that we're discussing here is not dependent on any single government or any single uh, branch of this the U.S. government on um, being able to take action. Um, a lot of the energy transition has been underway in, in, a, in, a, in a, through a secular trend that has had to do with lowering uh, costs of, of technology and innovation as well as with the, kind of the, the risks coming from climate change um, and risks to stranded assets, to Anthony's point earlier, becoming clearer in the minds of both companies and investors. So the longer-term pieces, uh, in our view, continues, um, even though we're, we're seeing setbacks here and there. 
Thank you, Amantia. So to pile on to the hurdles we've covered thus far, unfortunately, there seems to be a lot of news recently on greenwashing or misrepresentation of sustainability claims, which has led the way for an increased focus on transparency by regulators. So Anthony, from an investment perspective, what are the ways that we as investors can try to identify whether companies are truly implementing a sustainability focus when considering how to best position our portfolios? It's a great question, Dan. And um, I think with uh, recent regulatory activity with a, with a variety of proposed rules and then all of the activity that we see happening in, the, in Europe in particular, I think regulators are definitely uh, concerned about greenwashing and um, I think recognize that it is a difficult and complicated landscape for investors, advisors, consultants to sort through um, Sort of the level of commitment um, with issuing com- companies, operating companies around sustainability issues, but then also investment management companies as well. And so you you have a, a very recent SEC proposal to get issue to operating companies, you know, public issuers uh, to do a better job of disclosing sort of their climate performance or the risks that they face in their business from a climate perspective. You also have some proposed rules uh, uh, focused on investment managers to do a better job of disclosing how exactly they're going about doing this work and and a proposed rule to um, get sort of um, investment managers to commit from a naming perspective that the investments in a particular fund are indeed sustainable investments. Um, I, you know, we support a lot of these proposals because we do think that it's a very sort of complicated and increasingly crowded space. And, and it is um, challenging for investors to sort through, um, you know, what any particular company or, or manager is doing. I think it's important for investors to think about sort of the intentionality of a particular company. From an investment management perspective, there's a lot of ESG integration that happens, um, but it's not necessarily focused on the outcomes of a portfolio. It is possible to measure things like carbon emissions and exposure to fossil fuel reserves and water usage and board diversity. And, and, uh, and you can measure these things in funds. And I think that, um, clients want to see more intentionality and more outcomes orientation versus just considering sort of the ESG risks, um, in the portfolio management process. Um, I think it's important to, to recognize as an investment team, have a dedicated ESG research team? Does an issuing company have dedicated sustainability analysts who are ensuring that uh, the management of the company are really focused strategically on these issues? Um, back to the investment management side of things, engagement we know is an, incre- is, is an increasingly important part of the process. Uh, Dan, there were several hundred shareholder proposals filed this last year that were focused on environmental, social, or governance issues. And uh, we as investors have the opportunity, we would argue even sort of the responsibility, to vote on these proxies and not just vote with management, but actually vote in alignment with um, an ESG um, philosophy or methodology. Um, And so I think those are just a few ideas. I think um, uh, the output of all of this regulatory activity hopefully will be a more straightforward environment so we're, where we are working with better information from operating companies. Um, ideally, it, it's um, a compulsory process that goes through an audit 
cycle versus voluntarily disclosed information. And then I think it's going to make it easier for investment managers to do this work and um, ultimately identify, you know, terrific companies that are financially attractive, but also doing a great job managing their sustainability issues as well. Well, thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that background as well as that guidance on selection as well as due diligence. So moving on to our third and final topic within the SI Perspectives publication, Amantia, you do dedicate coverage to LGBTQ inclusion in the workplace. So could you please touch on some of the ways that diversity and inclusion play into long-term investment opportunities? And further, what are some of the challenges with identifying these opportunities? Yeah, thanks, Dan. And here we're, we're shifting gears a little bit, staying timely um, as we looked at this and did a deep dive on this question, um, um, you know, in, in light of not only our focus on diversity and equality as a longer-term investment theme, but also with June being uh, recognized as Pride Month in the U.S. and in many other countries. Um, so we... Firstly, I'll say off the bat, um, as we think of diversity and inclusion or diversity and equality, um, we believe that these are areas that are germane, are relevant to investment performance. And so with that um, kind of statement, which was backed by our research into the theme, we took this deep dive on LGBTQ-specific data, um, you know, state of the world and, and inclusion, and we found three things. Um, firstly, in looking at survey data, um, we found that more and more people are self-identifying um, as uh, being a member of the LGBTQ community. So, for example, in the U.S., um, uh, the Gallup surveys showed that the percentage of U.S. adults that self-identified as, as not being heterosexual um, increased to 7.1% in 2021, which is double the rate um, of, of a decade prior. Now, even within this group, one in five members of the Generation Z, um, so the, the youngest uh, generation, um, identified as part of the community. Now, that's number one. Number two thing that we learned was that despite this increasing self-identification in surveys, um, LGBTQ individuals are still not very likely to disclose their sexual orientation at work. So in the EU, for example, um, according to a survey of 139,000 individuals across European Union countries, less than 50% of people um, responded that they were fairly open or even very open um, about their sexual orientation in the workplace. And similar response rates have been recorded in the U.S. by a variety of researchers. Now, you may think, you know, why is this important? Um, well, Part of why this is important is, again, that the EU survey noted that 21% uh, of individuals, you know, one in four people, uh, felt, or one in five people, felt discriminated against at work. And that starts highlighting why this matters and why it's important. Now, number three here, tying it to, again, why is it important, is that evidence suggests um, that uh, being out about their sexual orientation in the workplace may impact how LGBTQ plus individuals view their employer, which is an important factor um, then for businesses that are seeking to retain employees, right? So as I'm tying this together to all of these findings, we look at data from and research from McKinsey, for example, that found that um, women who were out in the workplace were six percentage points more likely to feel that they had equal opportunities of advancement at work and 11 percentage points more likely to have a positive relationship with their manager, which is one of the key factors that makes someone more likely to want to stay instead of moving jobs. So again, 
inclusion, diversity. We've talked a lot about how it's important to company innovation, but in particular in this area, we think it's also important to um, how businesses are are able to recruit and identify talent and to keep them and, and, you know, make them able to contribute to their business and innovation. Now, that said, as I take a step back and think, how can we identify the companies that are doing better on LGBTQ plus inclusion? Um, that's where we have, unfortunately, still a challenge. Um, as this data at the company level continues to be relatively spotty, um, subject to reporting or self-reporting biases where companies that are doing better will, will self-report, but others will not. Um, and so this one is a challenge where we're thinking of different ways where diversity metrics can serve as a proxy to also capture this. Um, but it will be interesting to observe how this area um, evolves and very much from our perspective as investors is looking for companies to disclose more of this information will make us better able to make some of these decisions that are business and investment relevant. Thank you, Amantia. Anthony, do you want to get your perspective on this important topic? Would love to hear some examples of how you think of the evolution or evaluation of diversity and inclusion for companies with the issue of LGBTQ plus inclusion and focus, but also more broadly. Yeah, thank you, Dan. This is a critically important uh, part of the environmental, social and governance and sustainable investing process. Um, and, and this has long been a, a, an area of focus for us at Calvert. We're actually celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. Uh, we launched in, in, back in 1982 our very first responsibly invested fund, and, and notably we were the very first investment manager in the United States to take a stand on apartheid. So we, we, we got into this business 40 years ago, focused on a diversity issue, and we continue to work on that issue um, uh, today. And, um, and really coming out of sort of the police brutality issues of a couple of years ago, we really uh, put a lot of more emphasis into our ability to evaluate companies diversity performance um, beyond gender diversity, but also looking at racial uh, and ethnic diversity. We developed a concept called ethnic fractionalization, which considers the likelihood that randomly selected people on a board are from different ethnicities. Uh, but we also look at age and culture and skill set and different forms of, of diversity. And we also focus on uh, inclusive culture and, and part of that ability for a company to develop uh, sort of a, an equal and inclusive culture is having policies and protections, frankly, to all people, uh, but in particular the LGBTQ plus community. Um, first of all, I think the work that, that Amantia and, and UBS did on this uh, was, was really spot on. We, we uh, agree with the report's observation that uh, the sort of uh, disclosure is, is relatively spotty and is subject to kind of reporting biases. Um, but diversity metrics can act as a proxy when evaluating a company's um, performance, looking at gender diversity, looking at ethnic and racial diversity, looking at a company's ability to offer an, a, an equal and inclusive culture. There are performance benefits to companies um, f- from that focus. And so we, we do this through our research. We, we also do it through our engagement work. Um, we think that probably the best sort of data set out there, if we want to get into the weeds a little bit, is a source that's, that's called the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's Corporate Equality Index. Uh, and this is a, a, a system of a resource that evaluates corporate policies, specifically the practices and benefits that are pertinent to LGBTQ plus employees. And it's based on annual surveys and scorecards. Um, data coverage is not great. 
but it is uh, there is some coverage, and we and it's improving coverage. And this is one of the kind of critical inputs or critical criteria that we use to evaluate to identify really leading companies based on um, equal and inclusive culture. And the last point on this I'll make, Dan, is that um, we've seen an interesting shift from an engagement perspective. So if we go back six, seven years ago and the preceding years, um, the LGBTQ plus shareholder proposals were among the most common social-oriented shareholder proposals filed at companies. We started seeing fewer of those proposed as a result of the Supreme Court's decision to make marriage equality when marriage equality became law. Um, and, and interestingly, in the last several years, what has replaced uh, those proposals are proposals that are focused more on sort of diversity broadly and uh, particularly racial, ethnic um, and human sort of human capital management, um, uh, you know, proposals that have been filed. So uh, but we need to continue the work on this because despite uh, the gains that we've made um, it through this this uh, index report that I mentioned, it is uh, reported that uh, as, mu- as many as 44% of the Fortune 500 companies continue to not have domestic partner benefits in their corporate policies. So we've made progress, Dan, but there's much more work that can be done. Anthony Amante, a very productive session. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. Appreciate your time and the insight as always. Thank you for having us, Dan. Yeah, a real pleasure. Thank you, Dan and Amante. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.